Welcome to Heartland Christian Center Sermon of the Week. You'll be able to find more Heartland sermons at hcc.ag or the Heartland Christian Center YouTube channel. Please like, follow, and share this podcast with others. We hope you enjoy this week's message by our special guest. It is such an honor today to have all of our campuses that's jumping online with us this morning. Wanata, North Johnson, and over at Full Throttle, and all of our online audiences, wherever you're watching from, we are glad to have you. Dr. Scott Hage is, since 2017, has been the president of our North Central College there in Minneapolis. I made mention he pastored for a number of years, phenomenal uh, speaker as he travels, conferences. He's been in our Indiana district uh, several times, but he's never had the opportunity to, to come by our way, and we kind of connected and made a way for that to happen, and I know he's going to bless you today. He's written over uh, six books, 60-something articles on leadership and influence, and uh, he has a couple of books he'll share with you a little bit about, but would you welcome Welcome to the stage, Dr. Scott Hagee from North Central Bible College. Amen. Thank you so much. You can be seated. Thank you for your kindness. Good to see everybody here. We had a remarkable service at 815 uh, this morning, and I told the folks in the first service, I get a chance to travel and be in a lot of churches, as in Green Bay, Wisconsin last weekend, and been here in the Midwest for a couple uh, Sundays, and but I, when I travel and and I'm in a church with multiple services, uh, the research proves that if you go to a church with two services, the people that come to the second service are the most spiritual people in the church, uh, without a doubt. And I told the first service this as well. Um, those first service folks, they're dear people, but they, you know, they came here and now they're on their way to lunch. You folks got up super early, spent two, three hours with the Lord before coming here. Um, and I just want to tell you that the second service, folks, you're the backbone of spiritual life. Give yourself a hand for being in the second service. Um, honestly, great, great pleasure and joy. I grew up in a uh, small town in northern Washington, a little town called Cedra Woolley, Washington. Uh, it was a little uh, farming town. Strawberry, it was known for strawberries. And my grandma worked at the, the cannery there, and uh, we used to live off all the dented cans of strawberries uh, growing up. And um, so this just, driving here today was just a joy, and it just triggers a lot of magnificent, magnificent memories of uh, childhood. I have to live in a city now. I'm in downtown Minneapolis, in the heart of the city, so it's quite a contrast from being uh, here at Heartland today. Uh, but this is most like home to me, and I wish my beautiful bride was here. I've been married uh, for 40 years, and I say that with joy, 40 years. And my wife and I, we both just turned 60, so we get, we're getting some big Bible numbers in our life now, 40 years of marriage, six years. Here's my favorite picture of my bride. I brought this one picture of Karen. I love this picture of Karen. Uh, this is probably 1966, born in 62. I think she's maybe four. Uh, pretty sure it's Easter Sunday, um, but I just love this picture, the little the little matching purse with her dress and um, uh, the little bent wrist is just so cute, so feminine, little page boy haircut, um, the little smile and all that. But it's the gleam in my bride's eye. That is, that's what's there. And very few things in this world give a woman that gleam in her eye. That, that gleam only happens, ladies, maybe once in your life when you see something. And I think that Karen got her gleam 
when she was four. I think the Lord was showing Karen the future. I think this is what Karen was seeing in her mind uh, in the future. <laughs> I just complimented you and you're laughing at me like that. Um, no, that's uh, probably Easter Sunday, Fresno Airport, uh, 1966, around the same time. I got my little twisty velvet pants on there, my little patent leather shoes. My brother in his prison outfit to my left, he is uh, not too happy. Um, my sister Terry there, but uh, I just love the pose. I'm doing my best uh, to be a good soldier there uh, after lunch on a hot day. Uh, but it's, it's the haircut. My dad gave us haircuts, and we uh, had to move a lot as a kid. I moved 27 times by the time I was 16. My dad worked in lumber mill camps, and he had a big chainsaw. I can still remember the oil of the chainsaw. And we didn't touch his chainsaw. That was like his Harley Davidson, don't touch dad's chainsaw. But we would go in the basement every night and smell, smell the chainsaw. Uh, I said, hey, dad, did you use the chainsaw on that haircut you gave me in this photograph? Because I think that's what it kind of looks like you used on my head right there. Uh, but I, t I tell the students at the university that you put a pair of skinny jeans on that, and with that haircut, that's a modern worship leader in any church in America now. I was way ahead of my game, way ahead of my game back in 66. So those two little munchkins met, fell in love, and then this is life uh, last August. We have, we have 11 grandkids, four. It's funny how uh, I told our adult kids, my, my four kids, uh, you're done getting presents. You're going to get a little check on your birthday, and I mean little, like 50 bucks the rest of your life. That's all I'm going to give you. The big presents are done. All the cash is going to the grandkids. All the photos of the grandkids. Uh, life is passing you by. I'm sorry. So we love our grandkids. They are uh, the joy of our life. That's uh, our house actually out uh, in California. Actually, we have a nice cool barn there in the backyard, and we're home there in the summer. But um, that little fella next to Karen there, Elias, over her right shoulder, he's a spark plug. He uh, calls her Gaga. Yeah, which is cute. How cute is that? Gaga, Gaga. Until he turned to me and called me Kaka. Uh, um, and at that point, I said, no, 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 no. I, I took Spanish as a seventh grader. I know exactly what you're saying there. So we got a speech therapist to get that out of his mouth as fast as possible. So to get grandpa, uh, to grandpa. So anyway, they are the joy of our, our life today. And uh, so Anyway, I wish she was here today. She had a chance to go home actually yesterday, kind of get a head start on Thanksgiving week, and so she's not with me. But I just do want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart on uh, your gifts helping students. We lead a great university. Um, I think the most important role of a Christian university president today is to keep heresy out of their college and out of the curriculum. Uh, people don't care what you've built now. They only care one thing. Are you still telling the truth? Um, all the pressures of our world is just ripping the truth out of people, and they just don't have the, the strength. They're not well-grounded, not well-surrounded. I'm very blessed uh, to have had a great life being discipled well by older leaders, and I'm well-surrounded, and we are still a truth-telling Pentecostal great university uh, right in the heart of the city, so we have to minister uh, uh, in the heart of Minneapolis. You can only imagine what the last couple of years have been like for us in downtown Minneapolis, but I will tell you, the power of God's Spirit has never been stronger, and we are seeing a tremendous move of God 
uh, on the campus, and God is being faithful. So it's a great school. Uh, you can study education, finance, business, uh, become a youth pastor, a missionary, a worship leader, all of that in this great comprehensive but uncompromising school called North Central University. Everything's online, too, so you can get your degrees, you're going to get a master's degree, whatever it is in your life. Uh, so keep North Central University at the top of your list for your own personal education. Uh, make certain you check out the programs if you need to finish your degree online or you want to do online education. Uh, or, of course, it's a great residential uh, school as well. So anyway, thank you so much for helping our uh, students. That, that gift is substantial and helps us with our vision to give our missionary kids around the world that are sons and daughters of our AGWM missionaries a way to go to college tuition-free. And it has just been amazing the last four years. Uh, we have almost 60 of those kids now in Minneapolis from around the world. Uh, we used to have five or six, and now we have 60. I think the, the free tuition is helping uh, uh, them. But And plus, if you are uh, an AG minister's kid, of course, you get 50% off. Um, missionaries get 100% off. And plus, we have great scholarships, even if you aren't a, a pastor's kid. But thank you, Pastor, for that, that great gift. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6. Uh, today, so get your Bibles ready. As you're turning there, I did not. I did not come here to uh, sell books, push books. Um, I just want you to be aware of this very unusual resource. Um, this is a cool book that you can read in 20 minutes, and it's a book that looks like this on the inside. It's filled with hundreds of short sayings um, on leadership that the Lord has blessed me to write over the years, and we compiled it just a couple years ago. The Lord has breathed on this book uh, from the Green Bay Packers to the New York Yankees and uh, made its way around a lot of the professional sports teams that they're using it, but also in the business world. Um, and it's a book on leadership, and it's, it's, it's a kind of book. How many of you work in a tough place? You work in a tough environment. How many of you actually work for the Antichrist? The Antichrist is your boss. Um, uh, a couple staff pastors here. That it scares me a little bit. Uh, I don't know what's going on there. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. This book is designed for you to give to the Antichrist. Now, here's what I mean by that. It's written in a way that you can hand this to a non-Christian at work, even if they're your boss. And I promise you, I promise you, they will come back to you shortly and say, where did you get this book? This book has made its way from the White House to the uh, both sides of the aisle to the Speaker of the House in D.C. It's made it uh, Warren Buffett's energy company, Mid-American Energy, a guy named Adam Wright, who was the CEO. He's now the CEO of PG&E in California. But um, he got a, a thousand of these books and gave them to all of his executives as an onboarding tool. Uh, a lot of public school districts are using it. Um, it's just a fascinating book on leadership that gives you a way to think about um, leadership. And so why is it important? Because uh, right now, folks, you and I in this room, we're the only ones in this world that can read the writing on the wall. Now, here's what I mean by that. In the book of Daniel... Daniel chapter 1, three times the word education is used. And it's used because this whole cadre of young people, the handsome and the healthy of Judea, were kidnapped, Daniel and his friends, and they were taken 900 miles to Babylon. And the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, wanted to take the best of the best from this other nation and to give them a new way to, to uh, outlook on life. And he started with culture, and he started with food. And it was all done to soften and loosen their convictions about the things of God. We see the exact same thing happening today, that through the use of culture, 
uh, this softening, this awakening, this rewiring, ultimately to get the young men in Daniel chapter 1 to go out into an open plain called Shinar and bow their knee to a 90-foot statue. The goal wasn't culture. The goal was idolatry. And they wanted these young people to bow their knee to a false god. And you see the exact same playbook, play being run today in this culture. Um, people are just being conditioned through culture ultimately to bow their knee to uh, false gods in this nation. And so Daniel said, I'm not going to do it. And if you remember the story, he simply said, I, I, I'll stay true to my diet over here. And so he ate uh, some vegetables and he drank water instead of all the king's food. It says they examined Daniel after uh, several days and found him to be 10 times better than his culture. 10 times better than Silicon Valley, Wall Street, Hollywood could produce. Daniel was a 10x leader when he was 15 years old. Now you go to Daniel chapter 5. There's a new story. The grandson of that king named Belshazzar is ruling Babylon. He's throwing a drunken party for himself. He's wasted. Everybody's drunk. And all of a sudden, a severed hand appears in the story, Daniel 5, and writes on the wall. <coughs> and they pull out the wisest people, the conjurers and the soothsayers. Nobody in Babylon could read the writing on the wall. And they said, there's a, there's a man in the kingdom, in the dungeon. Your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, thought highly of him. He had a keen mind. He could interpret dreams. He could solve enigmas, which means he could solve the riddle and he could, or untie the knot, and he can also solve difficult problems. He could get people who hate each other to love each other. Let's ask him. So they pulled Daniel out. Now he's 85. And the 85-year-old, and this isn't like 85 in dog years. This is 85. Like those are Bible years, like dog. No, he's 85. And he's the only one that can read the writing on the wall which means that when he was a 10X leader at 15, he went on a 70-year run as a 10X. The goal is not to be on fire as a teenager for Jesus and then let that fire become a pilot light over time. The goal is to stay 10X, 10 times better than anybody in that, not 10 times better than you in that sense, but I'm tempted to have 10 times the competency to solve problems, see the future, and untie the knot than, than culture can provide. That's why leadership is critical in this day and age. That's what this little tool is all about. So I encourage you to check it out. If you lead a company, um, this is a phenomenal gift to give to all your employees. If you're on a team, you lead a team um, just for your own personal leadership, um, but also in the school districts. The Lord has used this greatly. Uh, in Lincoln, Nebraska, there was the closed door with all the public schools for 20 years. They couldn't get a Christian in the public schools to do assemblies. A pastor got 25 copies of these and gave them to all the school leaders in Lincoln, Nebraska. Pastor Rick Lormer, youth pastor Bruce Riddle. Superintendent calls it back and said, where'd, where'd you get this book? He goes, I've never seen fingertip leadership like that. And he goes, um, I need 100 more copies. And the, and the superintendent distributed them to his teachers and principals it opened the door, and that was two years ago, and they have since had uh, just a wave of great Christian leaders in public school assemblies. So this little crazy book that happened by accident is opening some great, great doors. So give it to the most wicked person you know and the most godly person you know, 
It's crazy. And then one last one. This is just a couple seconds. Last year, Tyndale uh, asked if we would participate in a very dynamic book called On Call Heroes. It's a hardback book um, that's a gift book for first responders, for police officers, and for firefighters, and for medical professionals, and everybody that's been holding this country together. Glad to hear about Convoy. We've got a little picture of the Convoy of Hope here. But um, I wrote the captions and the small stories, but the photography is beautiful. This picture of a black police officer with the tear coursing down his cheek is one of the most compelling photos I've ever seen. And I simply write, rarely is the wind at your back at precisely the moment you need. It's usually in your face making you stronger. And then there's a, a, a scripture there. This firefighter with soot on his face, I simply write, when you serve others, the bitterness from not being served is washed away. And then lastly, uh, this picture of this uh, military soldier pulling a wounded soldier off the battlefield. And I write, what made the good Samaritan good was that he removed abandonment. In other words, it's not about turning something wrong into something right. It's about turning someone lonely into someone loved. And so this book, uh, people, first, if you're a first responder, this is a great book to give. If, if you're a family member of someone that's a first responder, my goodness, this is a no-brainer for the holidays. There's some back there. But if you're a business leader and would like to get these to the police officers and the firefighters, a lot of churches, um, recently uh, 500 or 600 books were given to a, the new class in Chicago, the Chicago Police Department, a church in Chicago, was able to distribute this to all the new police officers as a thank you to say, hey, we just want all the firefighters and first responders and police officers to know that we love you. And it's also a great little conduit of evangelism written in a way that you can give to non-Christians. So those are out there for you. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. I want to tie together some stories briefly for you that typically are not linked together into, a, uh, into kind of a single message. And this will not be long, I promise you. Uh, but I think it's going to be very significant. I want to share a message entitled, Enough Already. Like, enough already. And this will make more sense in a moment. The Bible says in Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 17, that, that the governor, uh, Herod, had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John the Baptist as a favor to Herodias. Now, why would he be doing Herodias a favor by arresting John the Baptist? She had been, she, <coughs> Herodias, had been his brother, Philip's wife. So Herodias was married to Herod's brother, named Philip, was married to his brother. Herodias um, had taken and married Herodias, uh, and John the Baptist had been telling Herod, it is against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife, even for pagans. You can't steal your brother's wife. You can't openly do this. And, and she was not innocent. <clears throat> She saw more political gain being married to Herod than to Philip. Herod had a, had a rising career of power. And Herodias wanted to jump on that bandwagon over there. And so they both had committed this very public act of disgrace in politics and power. And so John the Baptist is a man of God. He doesn't go on social media, but he privately tells Herod, you cannot marry and steal your brother's wife. This is wrong. Herodias did not appreciate the preacher sticking his nose in their private life. So Herodias, the woman in the story, held a grudge, it said. And as a favor to her, 
Herod had John, who was his friend, thrown in jail. It says, Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But without Herod's approval, she was powerless. She needed the politician to pull the trigger. For Herod respected John, and knowing that he was a good and holy man, he protected him. But he still put him in jail, and that's how politicians operate. I can't tell you the amount of people that publicly have all these platforms of political hatred, but privately they get along. But they will never divest of their public platform because politics always wins. Always wins. You rarely, if ever, see a politician go the other way. Once they're publicly in power, they will stick to their platform, even though it says he respected John, tried to protect John, he still had him thrown in jail. Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked with John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. Herodias' chance finally came. Another party. Politicians love to throw parties for themselves, like Belshazzar in the Old Testament that I just referenced. Everybody's drinking. This has turned into a, a party, a private VIP party in Las Vegas at this point in the story. All of a sudden, the dancer comes out. It's the daughter of Herodias, the daughter, and she's dancing. Herod is drinking. He's looking at this lady dancing. All of his resistance is beginning to fall apart. And in a drunken state, he says, hey, whatever you want, I'll do. What do you want me to do? I'm the governor. And so Herodias asks her mother, daughter, the daughter of Herodias, asks her mother Herodias, what should I ask for? And the Bible says this gruesome scene unfolds. This thing's so gruesome, it would be banned on YouTube. The content would not be allowed. Some of you are old enough to remember a decade ago or about seven, eight years ago when ISIS was putting on YouTube scenes like what I'm about to share with you. She said, I want you to ask uh, for John's head on a platter. So she dances. Then the king, <coughs> um, the girl hurried back to the king and said, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a tray. The king deeply regretted what he had said, but because of the vows he had made in front of his guests, this is why politics always wins. The vows he made in front of his guests, he couldn't refuse her, so he immediately sent the executioner to the prison to cut off John's head and bring it to him. The soldier, the soldier beheaded John. It's still startling. You're telling me that the devil has the power in a drunken whim through a politician to execute probably the second most godliest man walking on the earth next to Jesus is John the Baptist. I just really want that to sink in what just happened. They beheaded John. He brought it up to the mother, <clears throat> and when John's disciples heard of it, they went and requested the body and then went to tell Jesus. Can you imagine the PTSD on these disciples? They're thinking, if God doesn't have the power to protect John the Baptist, what hope do I have? <clears throat> this man's 10 times more godly than I am. 
Does a politician have the sovereign power to kill godly people in a, in a drunken whim, behead them? It's shocking what just happened. And the Bible says that the disciples of John went to get him and bury, bury him. I'm not trying to be gruesome here. But can you imagine <coughs> having to bury his body? Is the head detached in a separate shroud? Can you imagine what that scene must have been like for the disciples? The disciples returned to Jesus and told them all that had happened. Then Jesus, who is the second cousin of John the Baptist, said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. No kidding. Can you imagine the shock and awe of finding out that John has been killed with a message killing? Not just he's just been killed, but they did it in a way to send a message to all the other disciples that the politician has the power, not the church. The politician has the authority of the sword. The state, not the kingdom. All of a sudden, they tell Jesus, Jesus says, we've got to go rest a while. I would too. I would need a reset. This is Jesus' second cousin. Remember, John's six months older. John's the one that left in the womb of Elizabeth when Mary walked in to announce that she too was pregnant. The mere presence of Jesus as a, as a tiny little cell cluster in the womb of Mary changed the atmosphere in the room when John was still in the womb. The Bible says he was leaping for joy. Whenever Jesus in any form comes into the room, friends, changes everything. Whatever little room you have, you exercise it for joy and celebration. Little John's dancing in the womb of Elizabeth. This is now... Three decades later, John has been beheaded. Jesus said, let's go rest a while. Back in 2020, when without warning, we were assaulted with story after story of death. I'll never forget January 1st, 2020, the first day of the year, my good friend Carl, who's a missionary, he's 41 in Mexico, they found him dead from pneumonia. <clears throat> on New Year's Day, we were stunned. We were crying at 3 o'clock. Carl has died. Four days later, they found my aunt dead in her apartment. The following day, one of the precious people in my church in California that I'd passed her before going to North Central fell dead in Branson, Missouri. A couple days after that, one of my dear friends, Cy Rogers, one of the great missionary voices in the world, I hear that he fell dead in New Zealand. A couple days after that, Kobe Bryant gets killed in a helicopter crash. And I'm thinking already, what in the world is going on? Why is everybody dying in 2020? And we are still just weeks away from hearing the word coronavirus. It came with such speed in March, and suddenly our college is shut down. Suddenly everybody's running for cover. And then over the next several months and year, the daily death counts that we are being told over the news to paralyze, sequester our world. I remember as a kid on my little Zenith 
TV, black and white TV with the handle on it back in the 60s. I was a little kid. That was our television with the antennas. And you had to fix the reception almost every day with some fresh foil that you would put on the antennas. Anybody remember this? Whenever we needed fresh foil, I would jump from the couch and say, I'll go quickly eat some ho-hos and ding-dongs to get some fresh foil. I was always volunteering to eat the ho-hos for better TV reception. But every night we would watch Walter Cronkite on the news, little black and white TV. Up in the corner was a death count from the Vietnam War. I vividly remember that as a kid. Now in 2020, we're seeing a similar type daily onslaught of people that have passed away or that are dying of this and that. And this narrative and this fear and this collapse Imagine, I imagine that's what it must have been like for these disciples. When John died, they must have said, death is inevitable. We are all, it's only a matter of time. And the cloud of death began to rest over the church in the gospel form here with these disciples. Wondering, I'm too vulnerable. What happened in 2020, friends? with COVID and with the racial unrest and with the election was like the Bermuda Triangle. Those three events, so many churches, so many people went into that triangle and they never emerged. And you began to think, what is going on? The Bible is making more sense than it's ever made before but it was happening with such speed, it was hard to organize it. Remember that scene in the book of Acts where the apostle Paul goes into Philippi and this woman comes up behind Paul and says, listen to these men, they proclaim the way of salvation of the most high God. She's telling everybody to listen to Paul that he proclaims salvation. It says after many days, he casts a demon out of her. Well, why would you cast a demon out of somebody that's telling the truth? What's going on here? He began to realize that this was a harassing spirit, a flattering spirit, a demonic spirit that was seeking to confuse the setting. Why am I saying this? Because, friends, sometimes it takes a minute to figure out what is really going on. That's why the enemy comes in like a flood, because it confuses, it disorientates the church, rips families apart. 2020, what a low point. College and sending everybody home and then living in the city and having to try and organize. And I'm a spirit-filled Holy Ghost preacher. I read my Bible. I know the madness and the deception of the last days. And I don't want to give oxygen to deception. And you're trying to manage and steward what's going on. It was all coming with such speed. It's like after many days, you begin to figure out what's really happening here right now. So don't feel badly if it took a minute to kind of figure out 2020, okay? Nobody, it's not like a light switch for anybody in this room. We're discerning, we're watching, we're praying. God, what is really going on to our country and our world right now for the first time? 
Jew and Gentile, like in Paul's day, on that ship to Rome, the, the believer and the unbeliever was in the same boat, caught in the same storm. You had the Gentile, the Jew, the slave, the free, the centurion, the prisoner. Everybody was out there in that same ship in Acts, and they were all caught in the same storm. Our world and the church, Christian and non-Christian, from 2020 on, we've all climbed into the same boat, and we've been in the same storm, and now we're all kind of hanging on to planks trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Here's the key. The apostle Paul went into the bow or the bottom of that boat. He encountered the presence of God. He encountered an angel who said, you will make it safely to Rome. The person with the encounter with the Lord in the bottom of the boat became the captain of the ship and gave the guidance and the prophetic understanding. They saw the writing on the wall. So even though our world is in this storm and all in this ship and we're all trying to figure it out, those who know the Lord and know him well, friends, are going to become the captain of the ship to be able to read the writing on the wall. But it shook all of us. It confused, it confused all of us. 2020 was such a low point. My mom, I didn't, wasn't able to see her for a year. She was in a care facility with Alzheimer's. We would FaceTime mom. They would forbid us to see her up in the state of Washington. We'd do, go on FaceTime. She has cancer and Alzheimer's, and she's in her 80s. We know her time is limited on this world. She would occasionally have a 10 or 15 second glimmer of sensibility and communication, and then it would leave again. Our main job was to be present, to hold her, to talk with her, comb her hair, do her nails, get her ice cream. And we were told we couldn't see her. So we're on FaceTime with mom, and she's more confused than ever. Finally, in the state of Washington, they allowed us in this bizarre setting outside under a tent where she would sit on this side of the table and the four siblings would be on this side. We took whatever they were offering us, so we all flew to Seattle. We sat there on the table, and my precious mama comes around the corner. And in her state of dementia, she looks at her four kids and said, Where have you been? Mama, the whole world's crazy. Mama, we're going to... They sat her down, and we sat here. And our mother is lurching for us. And we're recoiling from our mom. It's the lowest point of my adult life. The rage and the anger that I was feeling was almost insurmountable. There was a nice nurse. It wasn't her fault, but I was so mad at her. I told my brother, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punch her so hard. I'm going to knock her out. We're going to drag her behind this shrub. We're putting mom in the car. We're headed to Baskin Robbins to get some Jamocha almond fudge ice cream, the kind mama likes, and we're going to Starbucks with mom. I've never felt those feelings as a Christian that I felt in 2020, 2021. So the nurse kindly I got her to cry. 
we were the last ones of the day, and she says, well, listen, if you put on all this surgical stuff and this basically a hazmat outfit, we'll let you hold your mom. I said, deal. So we got all four layers of this and that. And I wish I had, I should show you the picture I've got of my sister snapped it of, not of me holding mom, but of mom holding me. She passed two months later, so I'm grateful to God because I know when I preach and I, on occasion when I tell this story, I know that there's thousands of people who didn't even get to do that, nor get to have a funeral. What I'm saying is that when the cloud of death hit, this inevitability through war, through the pandemic, something was shifting. The Bible says they went back and told Jesus. <clears throat> he said, let's, let's get away, let's rest. And then it says he said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. It says it right there in the Bible, they had no time to eat. So they tried to find a quiet place, but the people pressed in on them. So great that Jesus saw the large crowd. He stepped out of the boat and he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them. So let's start to understand the sequence. The cloud of death is everywhere. They're trying to find a place to regroup. But the needs of the world are running at them. It's so chaotic, the Bible says they had no time to eat. So not only is there the cloud of death, the inevitability of death, now they're running on empty. How do we function when we're running on empty? No time to eat. That year I couldn't hold my mother. That's my way of eating emotionally and psychologically and spiritually. Churches were obliterated, families ripped apart, worship patterns disrupted. Irreparable damage has been done to families. We're seeing Micah chapter 7, verse 9 unveiled. Said in the last days, son will be against father, father against son, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. I've never in my life seen a greater Call it what you want, pandemic of human wreckage. I can't tell you the amount of grandparents who have no access to their grandkids anymore. Seeing it all over the United States. People not allowed to see their grandkids because of politics, because of mass, because of vaccinations, have ripped families to shreds. We have not had time to eat all the things that filled our soul were now placed in jeopardy the last couple of years. And we're running on empty. No time to eat. You should see the freshman class. After two years of being on their iPads at home, year and a half, their inability to sit through class, their inability to write a paragraph, It's unbelievable what has just been dismantled. No time to eat. 
And with the cloud of death, the inevitability of death, God, you couldn't even protect John the Baptist. What hope do I have? I'm running on empty. This verse of Scripture's next. It's one of the most poetic Shakespearean lines in all of the Bible. It says, late in the afternoon, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, we are in a desolate place, and the day is far spent. Jesus, we're in a desolate place, and the day is far spent. The sun is going down, Jesus. Jesus, we're in the middle of nowhere, and we are out of time. I'm running on empty. And I feel like death is right on my life. What are you supposed to do when you feel that way? I, I don't think I found language in Scripture that better describes the last three years. Death, through disease, through war, through violence, everywhere we go, our head is on a swivel, checking out every scene. I was in the drive-thru at McDonald's last night. On my way here from Midway, late at night, halfway here, some McDonald's drive through I spent my whole few moments not thinking about my order, but mapping my surroundings, keeping some space between the cars in case somebody wants to come cart. We went from a nation of service to a nation of surveillance. We went from a nation of just a cold shoulder to a nation of a cold heart. So where does that leave us? Okay, we're going to start bringing this together now and wrap it up. Here we go. Jesus, John's dead. We're next. I haven't eaten. Man, we're in the middle of nowhere, and the sun's going down. When you stack all that together, you can understand why, G why the disciples then said this. Jesus, we're in a remote place, and the day is far spent. Send them away. Send them away. For the first time, the disciples have no interest in the ministry or mission of Jesus. He said, we're done. I got no great commission left inside of me. I have no love for my neighbor. I don't care what condition the world is in right now. Man, I, I'm, I'm running from death. I'm running on empty. I feel like we're in the middle of nowhere as a country, and the sun's going down. We're out of time. I really don't have any uh, mercy, empathy, or mission inside of me. Jesus, send them away. Many churches across this country, believers, that's their state of mind right now. Send them away. And Jesus, musicians, you can come now. I want to give the people hope uh, uh, that, that there's hope. Yes. When you see the musicians, don't you feel hope? Like, okay, good. The guy is up there getting pretty excited. He's going to go for hours here. Now, here we go. Jesus then says to the disciples, oh, Wow. I didn't realize all these things were stacking up. You bet. I'll just send the world away. 
We'll just call time out on the Great Commission. We'll just send the world in all of its need away. And then we can just cuddle up and cozy up and stick together until all this passes. And then we'll come back out into the open and be a blessing. It's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, after they said, send them away, Jesus says, no. Give them something to eat. And the disciples said, with what? And I guarantee they raised their voice, with what? What do you expect us to do, Jesus? We're starving ourselves. I got no emotion, no energy, no strength. We've had no time to eat. I can't get the image of John's headless body out of my head. I just buried that. If you looked around, Jesus, we are in a remote place, desolate place. And while we're talking here, the sun is almost gone. We're going to be out in the middle of nowhere in the dark, hungry, empty, lost. And you want us to do what? Feed them? With what? Jesus said, um, he said, even if we were to go work for months, the disciples said, turn money. It would never be enough for these people. The scale of what is happening in our world with the nations in an uproar, the people imagining a vain thing. Psalms 2. You ever go to bed at night and think there's a meeting that's taking place while we sleep and we wake up in the morning? There's a group of people that are spewing something more stupid than yesterday on society. The people are imagining a vain thing. The kings are in a rage. Why? Psalms 2. Are they doing this against the Lord and against his church, his anointed Christ and his church? They're saying, let us break the fetters. Of the Lord. I grew up singing, Jesus breaks every fetter. I thought that the devil used the fetter. But in Psalms 2, the world is in a rage and people are imagining a vain thing against the Lord and against his anointed. Saying, let us break apart the fetters of the Lord. Let's break asunder. What are they saying? What they're saying is, and what we're experiencing in these last days, friends, is the world hates the authority of the kingdom and the teachings of the kingdom. What we call revival, they call ropes. And they're trying to break free in their hedonism and paganism the authority and the teachings of the Bible. They're wrestling and they're imagining vanity and they're collectively coming together against the Lord and His church because they hate the restraint of the kingdom in the last days. It's hard to feel empathy for people when it's enough already, God. Enough already. Jesus says, feed them. With what? We go work for a month? We'll never have enough. The scale of this is too much. 
all the violence in the cities, all the rejection, all the perversion taking over public education, people that care deeply about racial injustice, but when racial injustice married perversion, it's peace out. How, how are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to help if I have to endorse perversion and do this? We are living out on the high seas of that Adriatic storm that's breaking the ship apart. And Paul's hanging onto a plank. We care deeply about people, injustice and pain. I'm probably going where I, I'll be careful, Pastor. Respect this great church, great leaders. These have been difficult times. Very difficult. Send them away. I've had that feeling myself, and I've been called to the ministry, and I've been preaching and caring for people. Our university's right downtown. We're on Chicago. Floyd was killed on Chicago. Our city's burning to the ground. They had nowhere to go. One Christian family member in Houston called and said, we have no place to grieve. I opened up our school so we could host George Floyd's funeral. I had people hate my guts over that. I've been a pastor for 38 years. I've never turned people away from trying to help. Just trying to help. We want to help people that are hurting. It was powerful. I didn't know 100 million people were going to be watching that day. Just trying to help. But you see the floodgates of perversion come in and much of the social justice movement has been married to perversion. And it's leaving Christians totally confused on what do we do next? Because we're not going to participate. I'm not going to participate in idolatry and perversion. I'm going to care for people that are unjustly hurt by society, but I am not going to violate the word of God. This world has just gone crazy. Send them away, and Jesus says, no. I want you to feed them. With what, Lord? There's not even a strategy that will work. It's not about resources. There's no, there's no time to solve this. He said, what do you have? Go look. And I bring my message to a close. They came back with five loaves and two fish and they shoved it in Jesus' face. Evidence, Jesus. Exhibit A. It's over. Sun's now set. We're in the middle of nowhere. We're dead. We're starving. Jesus took it and he blessed it. In most cases, Jesus gave thanks for food, but in this case, he blessed it. Because Jesus doesn't care what we have, Heartland Christian Center. He only cares what we have left. What do you have left after the last three years? COVID and the racial pain. The elections. What do you have left? Man, I got, I'm on fumes, man. I got some great commission fumes. That's all I got left. 
He said, bring your collective what's left, not what you had. What do you have left? And when we come together with what we have left, not what we had, but what we have left, the Lord somehow blesses it. And then he tells them two things. Sit the people in groups. So Heartland, your job is to help this community find its neighbor again. Sit them in groups. And then this miracle of miracles, he said, put them on the green grass. Where in the world do you find green grass in a desolate place? It's like those golf courses in Dubai that you see pictures in the middle of the desert. There's this brilliant green golf course. How does the Lord create green grass in a desert? I don't know. But that's what Heartland Christian Center is. You are a place of refreshing in a desolate place. You're a place where people can sit in groups where everybody's running for cover. You're going to bring the community together. They can find their neighbor. And the Bible says that they all ate and were satisfied. What started with a beheading ends in satisfaction. And this is the hope I'm holding on to in this moment. Let's all stand together. Thank you for listening to Heartland Christian Center Sermon of the Week. If you'd like to partner with us and give, please go to hcc.ag and click the Give tab. Please like, follow, and share this podcast with others. Also, if you have a prayer request or want to contact Heartland, please email us at pastorphil at hcc3d.com. Have a blessed week.